0: Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 362 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff. I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Today's episode is brought to you by Lead a Better Team, my brand new course on how to get better results. Maybe you don't need a new team. You just need to make your team better. Show you exactly how to do that. Go to leadabetterteam.com. Introductory pricing expires tomorrow. And that's if you're listening on release day. If you want to figure out who your online audience actually is, is Glue Insights will do that. Go to glueinsights.com forward slash carry. Well, I, I want to say, when I say, hey, everybody, it's like there's a lot of everybody. Man, oh man, I'll tell you, there are more people showing up to this podcast all the time. So if you're a new leader, uh, maybe you're a young leader, you're a church leader, marketplace leader, or just someone who's really committed to self improvement, really glad that you're here. Uh, I love being able to do this with you. And we try to bring you just some world-class leaders, some of whom you will know, like today's guest, Danielle Strickland, and others you may never have heard of. And uh, when I was in law school, we used to do like this case study method. So you just have to read hundreds of pages of cases and try to figure out what it means. And that's a little bit like the format. I think by interviewing world-class leaders, you get an insight into the behind the scenes. I, I try to ask the questions you would ask if you were at lunch or dinner with them. And uh, today's guest, actually, we did this podcast right after my wife and I had dinner with Danielle and her husband at our place. And this is like from a long time ago. It feels like another world. I think we recorded this in February, and it was one of the episodes that we kind of pushed forward once COVID hit later in the spring. She'd just come back from Germany uh, where COVID was present and uh, then later got COVID. Uh, I did not. But anyway, uh, she's all recovered. Her latest book is called Better Together, and she is an advocate. So what does Danielle do? Well, she's established justice departments, done church plants. She's launched global anti-trafficking initiatives. She created new initiatives to mobilize people toward a transformational spiritual life. She's the founder of Amplify Peace, the women's speaker collective, Brave Global and Infinitum. And we talk all about that and more, plus her new book called Better Together How Men and Women Can Heal the Divide by Working Together to Transform the Future. And we tackle some really tough questions. And uh, it was a fun, fun, fun conversation. So uh, we bring that to you today. And uh, hey, I got a brand new course. And the pricing is introductory for another 24 hours or so. If you're listening to this podcast on launch day, it's called Lead a Better Team. And if you've ever felt like you need a new team, because you're just so frustrated with your current team, or you're like, yeah, they're good, but they're not great you need lead a better team. What it will do is it'll give you a number of opportunities. I will show you how to deepen employee engagement and how to get a results-based system. Churches, church leaders, we're terrible at this. We don't actually prioritize results. And sometimes marketplace leaders aren't very good at it, or they're really good at results, but not good at people. Well, what if you could do both. Lead a Better Team will help you get results, transform your team culture, and see your employees engage deeply. Whether your team is five people, 50 or 500, you get the best pricing through August 26 by going to leadabetterteam.com. And we come back at the end of the podcast. I'm going to talk to you about, uh, well, something I talk about in the course, which is how your workflow system is crushing like hurting your productivity. So we'll talk about that too. And then as we all know, every church is online. COVID-19 has really disrupted how people relate with each other, but that also complicates things. And a lot of leaders have lost visibility into who's engaging with their church and how they can serve them. And even if you're reopened, which about 60% of churches are, you know that not everybody's back. So how can you actually figure out who is watching online? If you want clarity on your online audience, you can take action right now And then you can actually message the people who are watching directly because you can figure out who they are. So if you want to figure that out, go to glueinsights.com forward slash carry. That's G-L-O-O insights.com forward slash C-A-R-E-Y. And check out the amazing technology they have available for you today. Well, uh, we're going to dive into my conversation with Danielle Strickland. And I just want to say to all of you who are brand new, uh, just so you know, there will be transcripts. Uh, We'll give you the show note link after the interview is done. And if you are new, please subscribe and share it with your friends and let Danielle know that you really appreciated this conversation. So without further ado, the conversation I had a long time ago, almost pre-COVID, with Danielle Strickland. Happy to bring it to you now. Danielle, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Hey, so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well,
0: we're actually at our house, and your husband Steve is here. Yes, and we're gonna have dinner after we do this, right? Exciting. Yeah, I don't know what I'm
1: most excited about—dinner or the podcast.
0: Oh, it's a big green egg. So
1: (laughs) and those ribeyes, those
0: ribeyes. It's like a new. It's I haven't had that steak before, so we'll have to see how that works out. I had them cut it just for you guys because you drove up all the way from Toronto. We're honored. So catch us up to where you are, because you were Los Angeles-based, California-based, yep. right? Yep. And then you came back to Toronto. Yes. When? Three years ago? Uh, two, two and a half. Two and a half. Yeah. So 2018. Yep. Wow. And how's the repatriation
1: gone? Oh, fantastic. We love yeah. it. I love Toronto. Toronto's the most diverse city in the world. Lots of people don't know that.
0: Yeah. Is it really? Like yeah. legit? Everyone it's legit, says that. legit the
1: most diverse city in the world for population. Yeah. And uh, what I love about Toronto is that it's diverse, but also that people love it. They love that mm. it's diverse. And so it's yeah. kind of a fun celebration of diversity. it's a it. clean New York. Yeah.
0: Kind of. <laughs> right? I was in yeah. New York and I forgot. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It was right downtown in Manhattan. The there's yeah. a lot of garbage on the street. There's a lot of garbage on the street. Yeah, people always, when they come to Toronto, it's like, it's so clean. And I'm yeah. like, no, there's a piece of trash over there. And then it's like, yeah, it's a nice, nice city. Yeah, we're loving it. But you're all over the world. What exactly are you doing these days, being an author-speaker?
1: Yeah. Author, speaker. And then I also kind of mobilize. I've co-founded a a few movements that I'm really passionate about some uh, spirituality. Did you hear how
0: casual that was? I (laughs) co-founded a few movements. So yeah, no, but this is legit. This is, this is real. So tell us what you're doing.
1: Yeah. So uh, things that I love doing actually, real natural things that come to me as uh, important, uh, uh, living a life of depth. So I really want to live a life that's not just wide, but also deep. Uh, so I've been part of a group of folks that have been practicing a spiritual practice called infinitum, which is a way of life, uh, what I affectionately call an open order. So we, we view our, uh, le- we view our life through three postures, uh, surrender, generosity, and mission, hmm. and it helps us keep Jesus at the center of our, our thought, our practice, our attitudes, our relationships. And it's been a real game changer for me.
0: Yeah. So why the name infinitum?
1: Yeah. Uh, we wanted to make it really difficult for people to find.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Does it have to do with that idea? Because if of you're like, not serious
1: inf- about it, you can't do it. No, I'm just Infinity? Is
0: it? Is it uh, related to it? It's Latin
1: for boundless. For what? Boundless. Oh, boundless.
0: Okay, great. It's
1: Latin for boundless. And that's what we wanted to live, this boundless life. So Ephesians 3, you know, is the from the Bible, Paul talking about, you know, I'm praying that you would be rooted and established in love. Yeah. But then you'd be able to grasp just how wide and high and long the love of God is. So the image that I got, I felt like the Lord gave to me was deep and wide at the same time. Mm. You know, these go together.
0: And we were talking before we started um, recording that you want to experience or you want to experiment with different immersive experiences rather than, you know, the talking head or teach, teach, teach,
1: Yeah, teach. look, our heads are bigger than our bodies. Actually, I once had this picture when I was praying and I had this picture of this like stick man with this massive egg head, and every time the stick man would go to move, the head would fall over, and it it, it couldn't it couldn't move anywhere. And I felt like it kind of is like the church, hmm. like definitely the Western church, where our heads are so much bigger than our bodies. And I felt like it's time to <laughs> it's time to buff up, like it's time to yeah. actually work out and practice all of the things that we know, just put them into some practice. And so for us, it's almost like a. You know, like a hit training. How can we help you with some hit workouts? You know, maybe it's just twenty minutes a day, but we think these practices will make a real difference in the way that you live your faith. Hmm. And uh, so I just I know there's a lot of like head knowledge going on. And if belief was the recipe, what we knew would actually change the way that we live, we would be changed already. yeah, yeah, <laughs> so clearly, there's got to be you know, the only knowledge that matters is applied knowledge, right? I think is is how its said.
0: Right. And you were just in Wales doing this kind of adventure thing that was spiritual with infinitum?
1: Yeah. So it was uh, immersive encounters, we call them. So we're trying to uh, create ways in which people can learn how to immerse themselves and encounter God. And uh, less talking, more action, more activities, like more reflection, more debrief, uh, more journey, more movement. So we were out hiking in these mountains in the hail. It was awesome. (laughs) It was great fun.
0: And it's an attempt to grow closer to God.
1: Yeah, it's an attempt to grow closer to God and to each other, into genuine uh, lives of depth uh, to make Jesus the center of our lives. So, you know, a few years ago, a bunch of us were around the table asking ourselves, like, do we actually follow Jesus? Or did we just decide to do that 20 years ago? And and now we just kind of work our lives out around this one belief system. Or today, am I actually following Jesus? And how would we know the difference? And so just all these questions led to uh, some of our best practices to keep our faith alive and vibrant and deep and true. And uh, so we decided to, just around the table, a group of friends for a whole year, just kind of practice these uh, practices, these ideas of daily, weekly, monthly rhythms, and see if it might matter in our lives. And we got together a year later, and we were all like, yeah, game changer. I've never been more in love with Jesus. I've never been more excited about my faith. I've never been more open to what God's doing in the world.
0: What have been some of the changes that have made that happen? Because I think you're reading a lot of people's mail. I ask myself that question. Yeah. You know, am I really following Jesus? People are like,
1: well, look at the difference you're
0: making. I'm like, yeah, but I know how I feel. It's an interesting question.
1: For me, uh, some of the daily tweaks have been the most surprising. Mm. Like, so every day I do this posture prayer. I call it posture prayer. I use my body uh, and I make this confession. So like I'll hold my fists up And I'll say, I confess that my natural human posture is to fight for myself and to make something happen. And then I'll say, but I choose to hold my hands up in a posture of surrender. And I'll hold my hands up in a posture of surrender. And, you know, this actually is not about me. uh, And I'm going to surrender it to Jesus today. Like all these things I'm trying to make happen. And then I'll hold my hands out in front of me in fists and say, like, my natural posture is to take, to keep, to hold, to hang on. But I'm going to choose a posture of generosity and I'll open my hands up. And this was a big game changer for me in understanding that generosity is reciprocal. Hmm. So this is not just about digging in deeper and giving more. It's about also receiving more. And I'm a way better giver than I am a receiver.
0: Ah, so, you, know, you know, talk more about that.
1: Well, I just think it's, it's harder to receive because you have to admit you need, you know, you have to humble yourself to receive it's like, it's a power issue isn't in the end generosity. It's, I'd rather fix. I mean, I spent my whole life working for the Salvation Army, helping people.
0: Yeah, yeah, no. But kidding. to be
1: helped, you know, to be that's a whole other. That's Sorry, a whole you just other said thing.
0: that's a power. Generosity is a power move.
1: Absolutely. Oh, I've if never heard that. This if, is you're great. Not, if you're not, if you're, if it's not reciprocal, if generosity is not reciprocal, it's just, it's just you being in control.
0: So it has to be. I, I, I want to drill down on this because yeah. generosity really interests me. So generosity means you need to receive from the person you gave to, or you just need to be in a receiving posture generally, with yeah. like in life, or or both.
1: Yeah, maybe both depends okay. on the person. So this was a, uh, this was really helpful to me, even when I when I would serve people who were maybe economically poorer than me, but then receive from them as well, hmm. and and learning to receive and not just give was like a discipline and was a, a helpful practice for me. So on a daily basis, I'll hold my hands out and go like, here's what I need for today, God. Which I think is interesting because all of the things I really need for today are actually available. <laughs> like think about what you need. But it's
0: hard It's hard to admit you need something. Right. Yeah.
1: So I usually say, um, you know, like I need patience by 8 a.m. at least because I have three boys. <laughs> three boys. <laughs> so yeah. like I'm out.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, but also vision, wisdom, insight, provision. like.
0: Well, and you accumulate, yeah, you accumulate enough skills over time that you don't really need to be reliant for that all the time. Is right. that fair?
1: Yeah, unless you're conduit, unless you're constantly giving away what you receive. Hmm. So that's the second part of the prayer is like, freely I receive and now freely I give, which was how Jesus sent the disciples out. That was the instruction hmm. to give freely what they had received freely. That was the instruction of, for the disciples. And when they did that, they saw a lot of things happen that were amazing. So I feel like that's still the recipe. Nothing's really changed. Like freely give what you freely received, which is why, you know, when Jesus ever talks about forgiveness and stuff, he's always like, you should probably forgive.
0: So you by nature love. you've been love-
1: forgiven. Like there's a, right. It's reciprocal. It's not like I'm not going to forgive because I'm amazing at forgiveness. I'm going to forgive because I've been forgiven. So this is, I've received this, so I'm going to extend it. Uh, As uh, a posture of generosity.
0: That's really interesting because I think leaders, many, not all, but some, and I'll put myself in this camp, uh, try to hang on and accumulate.
1: Absolutely. Well, that's what we're taught. We're taught. We're taught that, and then we're also taught on the flip side to be really super spiritual means just to give it away too. Mm,
0: You have nothing. Right. Right. Gave it all away. Right.
1: And back to my tent in the wilderness. Yeah. And Mm. well, and that's Paul sort of saying like I could give everything. I could be burned at the stake. I could be. But, like, you know, if I'm not receiving love, I'm nothing. Right. So, even just this idea that everything's reciprocal. The the last posture is a posture of mission. So, it's I cross my arms in front of me and I say, like, my natural posture is to critique, to spectate, to say it's not my problem, to create distance from things I can't change. And then I open my hands up kind of like in an embrace and I just say, you know, to the lost to the least, to the hard things, to those on the other side of the planet that don't have enough to eat, and also to my own spouse and my children at home. Like, here I am, Mm. I'm available. And that's what I call living an others-focused life. And um, so just doing those three postures every day has changed the way that I view everything that happens every day. So because what'll happen is, I also do this thing at night where I try to reflect on my day through those lenses too. Where was I surrendered? Where was I generous? Where was I others-focused? And as I reflect, I, I kind of notice, like, oh, I missed it here. Oh, I missed it here. Like, here was a an opportunity to be generous, and I, I, I mistook it. <laughs> mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, or, yeah, I do. And um, and so it's just completely changed now. In the day, I'll be like, oh, this is gonna be one of those moments later that I'm gonna hope I respond to, uh, you know, well as a surrender, generous, the, others-focused person. Yeah.
0: The posturing is different. The physical movement. Makes the prayer more real for you?
1: Yeah. So I was just in the mountains in Wales. I was with a guy who runs a big Im- uh, imagery marketing company, and he says he begins his day at work in his office with his door closed, and he just holds his hands up in the air, and he says, "I surrender this business to you and all the things that happen to God wow. today." And then he holds his hands open, and he says, "God, I need uh, patience and, vi- and and I need all these. I need kindness. I need generosity. You know, I need these things. And then I'm going to give that away today. I'm going to be this person today." And then same with the mission thing. And then I met this other guy who's a leadership coach. He was on the mountain too. And, uh, and he said he, met, he meets with a guy that's in charge of all the human trafficking uh, cases. He's a prosecutor in the UK. And under the desk at work, under his desk at work, he has a little picture of these hand postures, you know, that we use for mm-hmm. infinitum. And he said every case he gets, you know, he sits on his desk and he just prays, I surrender this case to God. And I'm praying, God, that you would give me what I need and that I would be as generous with what I've received in dealing with this case justly. And that I would be focused on others through the what happens in this case. And every case he gets, he puts through the lens of this posture. And he said it's completely changed his his work.
0: That's deeply challenging. Is it still an app? That you can... it's an app
1: it's a website infinitumlife.com yeah uh, and it's all, there's also an app called Infinitum and it's uh, everything's free uh, and they're just really practices that we think seem in, like they seem small and you sort of think like mm, does that really matter but in my own experience uh, it matters a
0: yeah. lot
1: changes a lot of things
0: I've been experimenting because we can all live in our own head with God you know, yeah. Show me how I can help someone today. And on the one hand, we're helping thousands of leaders every day, tens of thousands of leaders every day sure. by broadcasting. But I mean like, no, like for real, a person, a human being. Yes. And it's amazing on the days I remember to pray that. yes, It's funny how it will happen at the grocery store right. or uh, walking down the road or like I can think of, we were somewhere in a hotel. I had a chance to actually minister to this couple yeah. That was sitting by the side of the pool, and I'm like, if I hadn't prayed that, I don't think I would have seen that.
1: Right. So mm. it's intentionality, yeah. and then I think there's also like a whole lot to be said about neuroscience and using your body and praying together, and how that actually creates a, a like a, a way deeper connection. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, you look at different spiritual traditions, whether that's yeah. Eastern religions, meditation, Buddhism, yoga, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. They're, they're, and you look at Judaism. There was a very mind-body connection, prayer-body oh, yeah. connection. Well, you're always
1: eating, touching, smelling, lifting. Yeah.
0: And Christians <laughs> are right. hands
1: up. It was like Christians that made prayer born, It's right? the like, stick yeah. man and the
0: giant head. <laughs> right. Right? Absolutely. You're right. That's exactly what we've done to it. And everybody yeah. else is like, no, that's not how it works. Right. So that's we're cool. not
1: trying to shrink our heads. We're trying to grow our bodies. <laughs>
0: okay, that's fair. Also, we're trying that's to grow right. into our heads. There is shrunken head Christianity. That's yeah. a whole that's other right. That's right. podcast for a whole other right. day.
1: We're going to catch up to our heads. <laughs> That's okay. what
0: we're doing. So you're doing you're doing that. I'm glad we camped out on that. That's yeah. very challenging and encouraging to hear. Also, uh, tell us about some of the other initiatives. The Brave Global,
1: near mm-hmm. to my heart. Brave Global is mobilizing communities to reach vulnerable girls before they're trafficked. Yeah. So these are girls, uh, like ten to fourteen, just right in the age range of recruitment by exploiters. And we just had this thought when we came across a study in America that 70 percent 70 to 80% of trafficking victims that were born in America from America came from the foster care system. Oh, boy. And so that's what we thought at first. Like, oh, could this get worse? And then we realized, wait a minute, every single one of those girls has a name and a file and a caseworker. Oh, (laughs) We know where they are. So we thought, just a second, if exploiters can target vulnerable girls for trafficking, why couldn't the church, the redeemed, you know, communities— actually identify vulnerable girls for something better. And so we're trying to get there first. So we just did one in Toronto, actually, just uh, last uh, Saturday. Uh, 120 girls, uh, survivors coming, telling their stories, self-defense classes, you know, like an MMA fighter there, giving them some, which I think one of the best pieces of advice all the MMA fighters come to Brave say is that your first line of self-defense is not physical. Really, Your first line of self-defense, if you take a self-defense, and this is just free, your first line of self-defense is verbal. You speak, you make noise, you yell, you scream. You. Huh. So I'll never forget being at Mariner's Church in L.A. and this MMA fighter telling her own story of sexual abuse as a young child and then not even speaking about it for 10 years and then speaking about it to a counselor. And she said when she was taking martial arts training in self-defense, she realized, oh, this is my first line of self-defense. Actually being Uh. able to speak up And use your voice and talk. So she just said, I want you to repeat after me. There are a thousand girls at that event. And she just said, I want you, stop touching me. And like a thousand girls are like, stop touching me. Hmm. And then she's like, I don't like this. You know, I don't like this. Get your hands off my friend. Get your hand. Like just all these phrases you can say at a party, like things you can do. And then everyone, of course, gets a hotline number. And, you know, just actually equipping girls with like even words to say to express uh, your own ability to defend yourself. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible.
0: So this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but not too much. How did you think of getting an MMA fighter to train girls? (laughs) Like that's, that's a really, those are like two different worlds that don't often line up.
1: Well, I mean, we just, we were doing, I've been doing uh, anti-trafficking work for like over 20 years and you know, just eventually got this beautiful God-led strategy to get to the girls first. Mm. And uh, there was a local church in Long Beach. Noemi Chavez is the leader there, and just incredible advocate and pastor, preacher. And her and I got together, and she had just locally started this conference for girls. And when I went to that local conference for girls in the Long Beach, uh, in the hood there, I realized there's something here. There's a recipe here that every church needs to know they can be part of a solution uh, for a generation. Yeah. And so we just really looked at what are the things that happen to girls between 10 and 14 that we could uh, push back against. And, uh, you know, being sexually harassed, assaulted, abused is, like, number one. That's the number one thing that happens to girls yeah. that pushes them towards exploitation. So we were like, what can we do to combat that? And self-defense seemed to be a, a no-brainer. Logical. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And we just didn't—I didn't make the connection between voice— and defense quite
0: That's really interesting. But it
1: actually did, because this whole area of like, you know, the Me Too movement and women in general and the rates of sexual harassment and abuse that are so high, you know, and you realize like there was about 200 volunteers at this event in Mariner's church when she first said, this is your first line of self-defense and started teaching these phrases. Mm -hmm. And I looked around and like these 200 women volunteers are like weeping. Wow, And they all came like not all of them, but many of them came to me afterwards and just said, like, if only I had known that at 10, mm. you know, because I mean, they mm. would have went like 10 years is they would have went dozens and dozens and dozens of years without telling anybody or knowing how to actually fight back against this thing that's happening to you. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So powerful. that's
0: brave. And again, yeah, that's brave global, huge. And, and that's, then,
1: yeah, going everywhere these days. It's awesome. And if anyone's interested, brave dot org. Sure. We'll Maybe. link to it, I Calm. promise. It'll I be there. Yeah. Brave Global.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Google Danielle's name, you'll yeah, find it. Yeah. Um, and then, I don't want to limit it, but we're going to talk about women's Speaker Collective. Yeah, Women Speaker and, Collective. And, but are there other things? I mean, three is enough, but like, yeah, that's one just other fine. Thing. It's okay. called
1: the uh, Amplify Peace.
0: Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. I knew there was one. And it's about
1: mobilizing yeah. uh, peacemakers, and uh, specifically female peacemakers around the planet. So the you know all the studies, the research, the UN says that if uh, women are peacemakers and brought into a peacemaking process around the world that the rates of peace go way up over 60% higher. If
0: women make peace.
1: If women are part of the peacemaking process. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's fascinating.
0: So I have to ask you, because I want to dive into Women's Speaker Collective and then your new book. But that's not easy. Most people, most, and it's a lot of leaders, tens of thousands of leaders listening to this. Uh, you know, they're like, I have trouble with one. Okay. I'm leading one thing. Right, Not sure I'm doing it well. Uh, <laughs> do you want to talk about how you manage all of this? Because every sure. time we talk, you're like, you got back from multiple countries this week and yeah. you're off to Florida next week. And, you yeah. know, you drove up from Toronto. You, you, you tell, tell me, how do you keep all of these balls in the air? And you're mom of three boys yeah. and happily married and the whole deal?
1: Well, I mean, I never said I did it well.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think you said that. <laughs> so I actually do think, you know, people, the number one question I get from people uh, is, you know, about balance. Yeah. And I always said, you know, I stopped aiming for balance many, many years ago. Here, I, here. I looked for balanced people doing anything good in the world. I couldn't find many. So, <laughs> uh, but what I did start looking for were rhythms, you know, ah. and uh, really uh, trying to do healthier rhythms. Right. And practices and that back to the infinitum conversation, you know, like a deep life. Mm. Um, so there are some things that I just do put in my schedule for my own self once a month. I, anyone that works with me is invited to a prayer day and we try to practice a day of silence once a month together. Sometimes it's led, sometimes it's just us, but where we just spend a whole day just uh, exercising the opposite muscle than I normally do, which is talking. <laughs> so we just try to listen.
0: And that's anyone who works with you in these organizations, yeah, just comes together. Yeah, anyone
1: can, that, that can, that yeah, can make yeah, it to that, Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other uh, things, like I'm not the CEO of Brave Global, that's okay. Smiley, and I'm um, not the main uh, leader of Amplify Peace, that's Lisa, and that the basis of operations for Amplify Peace is in Arizona. So we kicked it off together, and I'm still part of the journey. So you're more like
0: a founder, starter, launcher?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
0: Great. How do you how do you do that? How do you mobile a lot of people have trouble? There's a lot of control freak leaders. So how do you find these women who lead these organizations for you? How do you release them? How do you make sure the vision doesn't get like messed up in the process?
1: Yeah. Well, these ones are fairly new ones. Um, so I'll keep you posted.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: but also I would say that I'm not sure that I found them. I think we found each other. I think it's about being paying attention to what God's calling you to do. Mm. And when you meet people that have a you know, you would have a heart connection and they would have some skills and abilities and also a similar calling to you mm. um, that you begin to share um, that calling. Then that calling becomes into some strategic ideas. And, but I would say that I am well practiced in releasing.
0: Yeah. You don't seem to me like someone who manages the details. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and that's partly, I'm not wired that way. Well, I
0: was going to say, some of that must be personality.
1: Yeah, I'm not wired that way. And then I think also, I really learned early on from this speaking thing, uh, you know, Ruth Haley Barton calls it the ministry of absence, hmm. that there is actually a surrendering that happens when you're not always present that is actually healthy. So I noticed this in church planting, where when I, whenever I would leave, someone would fill the space. Hmm. So I would have like a home group, And I was the leader of the home group. And if I'm there, I'm going to fill the space because I'm a leader. That's what I'm going to do. But when I'm not there, someone else tries to fill the space. Hmm. And it was one of the best strategies that we could find to actually identify future leaders is for me not to be in the room.
0: And see who rises.
1: Yes. Oh, interesting. Because if there's no space, no one's coming to it. Yeah, yeah. So it was actually, in the end, I realized this is actually a really strategic way of finding leaders is to just not be there and see who ends up leading. And actually some of them would be surprised themselves by their own, like they wouldn't have called themselves leaders, but they rose to the occasion. And then it turned out actually they have some really good gifts.
0: I've never heard that articulated that way. And that is really smart.
1: Yeah. So we call that the ministry of absence.
0: (laughs) Disappear, see what happens. Yeah,
1: I do it a lot. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's great. That's great. Yeah. Why do you stay involved and engaged with these organizations then?
1: Oh, I love them all. I wouldn't even call them organizations. I just yeah movements. Yeah, their heart, their uh, callings. You know what is it? Frederick Buechner says like when deep need hmm. meets your uh, gift, it equals a calling.
0: There's a name you don't hear enough of anymore, Frederick, Frederick Buechner.
1: Buechner. Oh, oh man, that guy. Yeah, is he still living? Do you no.
0: know? No, he died a while ago. I don't. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Well, well, the Google I know will help he's with still that. living in me because yeah, I read yeah, yeah, his, yeah. I still re-read, no, I haven't, I haven't. reread his books a lot. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. a preacher.
1: Who yeah, and was, uh, what's his book, Telling the Truth? The Gospel is yeah. a Tragedy, Comedy, and Fairy Tale. I used to use, read that every year. Wow, just because I was so oh, it was such such ministry to me. That, book. yeah,
0: his Christmas messages, his Christmas sermons yeah. are incredible. So, let's talk women's speaker. Collective
1: Women Speaker Collective, yeah. Whew. It's uh,
0: that's only two years old. My wife was at the first one.
1: Yeah, I want to say year and a half.
0: Yeah, that that yeah. young. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> what's the? I mean, uh, last time you were on the podcast, yeah. I, we broke down your communi- communication skills, and I stand Perfect. by what I said then. You're one of the best communicators I've ever heard in my life. Thank you, regardless yes. of gender. Just yeah. You know, kind. fantastic at what you do, brilliant at storytelling, brilliant at noticing and a delivery that is so calm. I don't know what it feels like on the inside, mm-hmm. but on the outside, it's rapturous. Like oh, I'm, and you know, wow. and what I do, I hear a million communicators and yeah. it t- takes a little bit to keep me engaged. Yeah, no, it means <laughs> you, a lot. you know how that feels, yeah. right? Oh, I, you know I'm always
1: aiming for the camera guy. Because <laughs> I know if I can get the camera guy, oh. I got everyone in the room. That's
0: it. You, so you look for the most cynical person. Yeah, well, the person yeah. that yeah. this is their
1: job to right. just get the oh. shot. They couldn't care less what's happening. If I can get them to not get the shot, right? Like that's the best. Is it? I'm I can never going see the camera, the camera guy. guy I, that's my favorite. Yeah, that's what I'm going great. for. Yeah.
0: Well, you do a great job at it. But you decided. Tell me the the impetus behind the women women's speaker collective. Well, I just
1: saw like not a lot of women on main stages, especially yeah. talking to mixed audiences, and I started asking why. You know, where are the women? Like it. You know what, what's happening, and I decided I didn't want to be an exception to the rule. I wanted right. to change the rules of the game, and mm. uh, so that's I started to think like, what is the game, and why isn't it changing? And so I, I went through a whole season where I just like challenged, shamed. <laughs> conference <laughs> organizers, you know, where are they? Yeah. And they'd be like, we don't know. And I'd be like, you should know, you know, like, and and then I just felt like, well, shame, fear, guilt, that never really motivates anyone in the end. It's always a bad strategy. And I felt God just sort of say to me, why don't you just help instead of just criticize? Huh. So I thought, okay, well, how can I help? And so I started to identify what the gaps were between what I wanted to see happen, which would be like just a shared uh, leadership from the platform, from leadership boardrooms right. and what was actually currently happening. And I realized that there was a couple of things. One, there was a lack of awareness and knowledge uh, from the conference organizers about where women speakers were. And then on the women speaker side of things, there was a lack of confidence and training to get them mm. where they needed to be. So there was sort mm-hmm. of work that needed to be done Yeah, they didn't get both. enough
0: reps. Some of that is reps and training, right?
1: <laughs> oh, a lot of it is reps and training. Yeah. You know? And even I would have a conference organizer say to me, can you give me the name of a woman who can knock it out of the park? You know? <laughs> and I'd be like, well, you have a lot of men who are hitting second base. So,
0: Sorry.
1: So, why That's does funny. it have to be a woman who's knocking it out of the park? Like, not everybody on the team needs to be a home run hitter. I mean, this right. is just like, I'm not I'm not like a super baseball fan, but I know <laughs> that you hit people who can get it to second base. And right. they're part of the strategy of the team, which is why you have all these speakers here going first base, second base, because you know you can rely on them to move the ball forward. Like we're mm-hmm. moving this team forward. So I said, I can give you a lot of women who can hit one base, who can hit two base. And then I know a few women who can hit it out of the park. But that you is changing have, the rules. You should have all of those women on this team. Like there should be a shared... Uh, you know, so just even that idea that like if I'm gonna have a woman, she's gonna have to be this like exceptional. And then the pressure that puts on women, because every woman that does get an opportunity, just like the imagine the pressure, the whole weight of the future of women are on your shoulders. No pressure. <laughs> Cause then if well, a woman tries it and doesn't hit it out of the park, everyone's like, Muh. We tried women and well, it I, didn't work, you know? And I was like, You exactly. try a lot of men and they don't work either, but you don't think of not inviting men back to this conference. So yeah.
0: That's really fair. And, you know, you've hit your share of many home runs, some grand slam walk-offs in, in your time speaking. But I'm sure you know, as a world-class communicator, they're not all home runs. Yeah. You probably get it. I get up there sometimes. I'm like, well, that was a bunt. Yeah. That's what that was. Yeah. You know, and, and you're right. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> foul, foul. Foul, Start Give ball. me another chance. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he struck out. Look at that. That's awesome. Uh, that, that's really good. Why? Yeah. Let's go to the question under the question. Yeah. Why do you think we're so unfair to women? Or let's talk about categories, right? Because yeah. men and I'm a white male. Yeah. So I definitely fit the category of overrepresented on the platform. Right. Um, but you know, people would say, Well, we need an African American speaker or a Latino speaker or Hispanic mm-hmm. speaker or a woman or, you know, yeah. whatever that happens to be.
1: Pick anyone. Pick that's anyone not that's <laughs> not a white and male. Anyone who
0: doesn't look like me. You're right. <laughs> and we're like, oh yeah, well, we had a Hispanic once and we had a woman once. Right. And
1: it's the same thing. Why for is that? Why do we do that? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a dominant cultural problem. There's blinders, there's perceptions, there's prejudice, there's a thing called patriarchy, so <laughs> a male view of the world, right? So yeah. if you're a male viewing the world, you don't notice it. It's just literally like the you know the big fish like it says to the little fish, you know, how's yeah. the water? And the fish are like, what water? What's water? Right. Yeah. And so I think a lot of the things that we're living in, and we're just you know you notice this. The Me Too movement was great. This 19 million women hashtagged within a month, like Me Too. And it wasn't like it was like it was new. It wasn't like for mm. hundreds of years women haven't been abused or harassed as a regular occurrence. One in three girls will be harassed in her lifetime sexually. So this isn't like, and this is every family. This is every family. I mean, part of it is the silence around it has made it difficult mm. to really understand. So that's partly the good news of it being exposed is us going, oh, this is a reality for one in three mm. girls. This is going to happen. So you just sort of go, oh, this isn't good water. Like, and you didn't even notice the water, right, for the longest time. And so I think I call patriarchy uh, very similar to sin. You know, it's like gravity. It's just where the road goes if you're not paying attention. It's just where the weight is. All the weight's going to go towards a male-dominated view. Uh, And there's a whole bunch of reasons why. Uh, Dominant culture, uh, you know, generations of views of women that have been inferior, uh, that have been enforced through attitudes and behaviors and... Uh, boardrooms that are all male. I think we have a real problem with um, leadership development because we've got sort of we're afraid of women, especially Mm -hmm. in this culture. So we don't develop or identify women. Uh, So you have men mentoring men, and you have all the top male leaders are male. So, if all the top male leaders are mentoring men, guess what happens?
0: You just perpetuate the system. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So, something has to change the system. And even if it's just awareness, like, oh, there's water and it's not that healthy, we should probably try to fix it. Like, so I'm partly what I'm trying to do is, you know, get really identify and confront the fear uh, because a culture of fear never helps anybody. And I feel like we're living in a lot of fear right now around women and men. Can you talk about that? The fear? Yeah. I think fear is the currency of oppression. Mm. And uh, I always understood that fear is sort of how you get caught in oppression. You know, when you get afraid and you start you right. becoming afraid, then you, you, know, you cower and you kind of come under a spirit of uh, oppression. But it wasn't until I studied Exodus, and I, I remember Exodus chapter 1, where it described Pharaoh's beginning of his oppression against the Israelites. And it said, because Pharaoh was afraid of the Israelites, he oppressed them. Oh, wow. And that's when I started realizing that if fear is your motivator, regardless of what you do or you don't do, if fear is motivating you, you will either be oppressed or you'll be an oppressor because fear is the currency of oppression. That changed the game for me on fear. Okay. Because then I started understanding that we cannot be motivated by fear if we're going to break the cycle of oppression on both ends.
0: So what did fear feel like for you?
1: Like the, in this specific? between Yeah, women well, like
0: between men and women or even trying to be a female communicator who, who felt you had a message to get out into the world or whatever, whatever.
1: Yeah, I think between women and men, like I, I you know, there's Wall Street, wrote an, there was an article about Wall Street's memo after the Me Too movement that just basically said no more women allowed.
0: They wrote I missed a, that. They wrote a memo really?
1: for all of Wall Street, which in Christian circles is just called the Billy Graham rule. And we've been right. practicing that since 1948. Because you talk about that. All right. Yeah, well, I just talk about how when you're fear-based, when you're viewing difference, so regardless yeah. of what the difference is, whether it's gender difference or race difference or background difference or class difference, when you view difference through the lens of fear, it becomes a threat. Mm-hmm. If you view difference through the lens of faith, it's an opportunity. Because actually, if you understand that difference is not just a thing about like someone different than you, like a a woman or a man category or a different race, but difference is actually at the heart of humanity. We're all different from each other. So there are some places I'm at where I have way more in common with the woman in the room because I'm a woman and we share some things. But there's other places where I have way more in common with the men in the room Mm -hmm. because we share different backgrounds and experiences. And so it's less about like our gender difference and just more that humans are different. Just mm-hmm. where things like the Enneagram really help us here, where we actually learn that we're different in the way we think and the way we operate. And it has less to do with gender and more to do with just human.
0: So you got to share your number now.
1: Oh, I'm a seven, eight, right down the middle.
0: Seven, eight. Okay, yep. interesting. Right so seven wing
1: eight? Well, it's uh, 4951. Okay, well, it's that's literally fair. like right down the middle. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I'm an eight, seven. So that's me.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Depends on the hour. I might be a lot of fun or I might be like totally intimidating.
1: Yeah, let's get some stuff done.
0: Exactly. Right. So let's talk about the Billy Graham rule because this is something I have thought about a lot and it's something I've generally practiced over the years and only recently have loosened up a little bit because I've been challenged as a leader exactly over what you talked about that I will mentor male leaders one-on-one but, you know, and so let's back up. What is a Billy Graham rule just for leaders who are listening, yeah. particularly people from the marketplace who may not know? I mean, the know. Billy
1: Graham rule, to refer to it derogatory, is weird because Billy yeah, Graham Billy doesn't deserve awesome. it. He's, He's awesome. awesome. Let's just say that right now. And we it, love it Billy Graham. And protected
0: his ministry over decades in well, some Well, there were
1: three. He made a rule during his contemporaries crashing and burning. Yeah. And he was a traveling evangelist in 1948, everybody. Repeat after me, 1948. Yeah. So there's a few other things you might need to know about what women could and couldn't do in 1948 in general culture. They couldn't yeah. own a credit card. They couldn't run a marathon. There was no co-ed Ivy League schools. Um, I mean, we're just—the we, this the dominant culture in which Billy Graham made this rule, the dominant culture, forget about the Southern Baptist culture, which we can right. talk about another version of this rule, but on, like, steroids— but women were not—he was not making a rule to, like, uh, work with female leaders. There were no female leaders. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like there were contemporary peers of Billy Graham that were female. That wasn't what the rule he was doing. So he was watching his contemporaries kind of fall to power, uh, money, and sex.
0: Yep. So he made three the big rules. Three.
1: He made three rules. And one of them was never to be alone with a woman without his wife uh, in a room with a woman, ever. And the second one was he would cap his salary at $15,000 a year. Uh, and the third one was that all of the, the organization of the Billy Graham Association would uh, help him determine what he would say yes and no to and mm-hmm. put some rules and structure and accountability in his life. So he made those rules to kind of work with what was happening. Um, and I often tell people who practice the Billy Graham rule today, you know, I think you should be at least consistent and cap your salary at fifteen thousand a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then when they protest, I'm like, "Oh, uh-huh. tell me more about why that's not appropriate." Uh huh. And then let's have that conversation about why that's not appropriate in yeah. all of those uh, three areas, perhaps. Well, I got
0: I got mm-hmm. challenged by a great leader who I you know still uh, doesn't work, we don't work together anymore, but we're still friends. Mm-hmm. And she just said it's not fair because you'll you'll meet alone with guys and you know male leaders. And they seemed to get an edge. And I thought, you know, she has a point. She has a really good point. On the other hand, I wanted my life to be a life of integrity and our marriage to be fair. And that doesn't mean just because you're alone with someone that you're automatically going to do something inappropriate. But um, talk about how you would reinterpret those dynamics for today.
1: Yeah, so first of all, I just think it's not okay to view difference through a lens of fear. Hmm. And so when you set up a rule that protects you from women, what are you saying about women? Mm. I mean, just take a second. You're viewing women as a threat or a temptation. That's how you're viewing every woman. So I'll often say fill in the blank on the Billy Graham rule with any other thing. Like just fill in uh, African American. Mm. I'm never going to be alone with an African American. I mean, how does it feel? I mean, it's a, It's insane, right? It's like actually, you're like, how could we possibly say that? Like, we can't, we can't say that. I mean, whether or not we practice that, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is the difference between like, I know tons of leaders who are like, I practice the Billy Graham. It's like this badge of honor and integrity. And um, you're like, wow, like you're saying out loud that every woman you need to be protected from
0: Mm -hmm. because she's
1: either a threat or a temptation, which is a lot. That's. And also, just for the record, if you're a Jesus follower here, you'll know that Jesus never followed the Billy Graham rule. So you might want to pick (laughs) your leader. Who are you going to follow, Jesus or Billy? Because as much as I love Billy, I'm following Jesus. Uh And Jesus, even in a culture way more infused with patriarchy, uh, did not practice that rule. He broke that rule regularly. So do
0: you have any boundaries then in your own leadership travels or personal relationships that you follow?
1: Yeah, I think— Integrity is a good idea. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I
1: think uh, transparency is a really good idea. Mm. I think authenticity is a really good idea. I think teams are really good idea. I think just team. I think one on one mentoring is a little overrated, to tell you the truth. I think teams are a really great idea, and that we should figure out how to do that a lot more. Mm. Um, so I, I'm a, a big fan for personal integrity and accountability. And so, like in my own life, back to this infinitum practice, I daily pray. I weekly connect with an accountability person. And I monthly challenge my own personal faith. So I say, like, live a deep, beautiful life. Because here's the other thing about the Billy Graham rule. Like, tons of people have been practicing it for, since 1948. That's a lot of years. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem to be helping.
0: (laughs) Yeah. There there are lots of people who, behind.
1: The (laughs) harassment, the abuse, the sexual scandals, the, I mean, it's not like it, like, okay, so that's not working. So even this idea of, like, the perception is what we're actually fighting. When I actually think we should fight deeper than perception. We should well, fight our actually own personal integrity. And that how we do that is not living our lives from a culture of fear.
0: Well, I, th- I, think, I think that's a really good point. And I'm, I'm going to get this slightly, uh, it's a paraphrase, but I did hear along the way over the last few years, and I think it's a good point. There is no law or accountability or board structure that can save you from bad character. Right. In other words, I might have all the systems in place with right. a board, and accountability partner. Right. I never meet alone with a woman. I've capped my salary. You pick it. Yes. If I want to do a bad thing, I will find my way around the system. Right. You agree? Yes, of yeah. course. Yeah.
1: The other thing I, I, I say, like, without it being just sort of a moral outrage problem, but 68% of all men uh, admit to viewing porn once a week. Hmm. And, you know, it's really interesting about the connection between porn um, and power and patriarchy. You know, there's just fascinating connections in that if you're the dominant uh, narrative of pornography, regardless of what kind of pornography you're like, the dominant narrative is one of conquest. So dominance, male dominance, and then female, I like it that way. Mm. And...
0: Like, is that complicity or...
1: Yeah. Or just like this fake idea of submission, like, okay. I want to be dominated. So you think about, look back to this neurological, like what you view regularly. So you're regularly viewing a narrative that women can't wait to be dominated, that actually right. their deepest desire is to be dominated and humiliated, actually, frankly, in most pornography So this is, and I don't think we've really fully understood the shape, how this has shaped culture and fed sort of a patriarchal abuse and harassment, and even just a misconception of power when it comes to male-female relationships. Here's what's terrifying is some of the fastest growing uh, pornography uh, victims. So uh, people that are addicted to pornography are young females. Hmm. You mean being the
0: subject of pornography or users of pornography? Users of pornography. Wow. Okay so
1: think about this. So if this is what's view, this is what's shaping your thought yeah. of how men and women relate to each other. Oh, got it. Got it? I mean, this yeah. is toxic. This is like so toxic. So in because, other words,
0: the very women who are young women who are the victim of it are also users and perpetuating the system. Yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah. This is our main dominant way men wow. and women are uh, learning to relate to each other is pornography. Well, and some, I think eventually you just got to go, whoa, this isn't good for us. This isn't good for our marriages. This isn't good for our workplace. This isn't good for our lives. Like something needs to be talked about and, and talked about about this.
0: So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think about this as a pastor. I've watched, I've been at this a few decades. Yeah and it's not like i've never looked at porn but it's not a regular yeah, struggle of mine i don't yeah. know thank god it's not i've got other areas of struggle but porn yeah. isn't one of them yeah. what do you do about this because some of the stats are now like 90% and of yeah. males are have looked at porn it's are 98 like i mean it's mm-hmm. almost it's almost like saying who hasn't who's seen the sky lately like right. we're almost at that level yeah. of it's ubiquitous now yes and what would have passed as pornography 25 years ago is now just mainstream ads, mainstream television. It's our, you know, movies, that kind of thing. What, what would you How would you speak into that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we have to identify number one, that it's a problem. I think we have to start speaking about it. I think we Uh, need way more like regular conversations that get us out of shame, fear, guilt, which cycles of, and I would say, so how do
0: you break that down? Because that is the thing. It's always shame, fear, guilt.
1: Yeah. Somebody has to talk. Yeah. Is it like, literally, men need to talk. They yeah. need to start telling the truth about what's going on. And they need to, you know, uh, there's a, a friend of mine, Broxy Cavey, at The Meeting House. Mm. He did a series on uh, men and women, or women in the church. Fantastic yeah. series on his podcast called uh, Her Story. And in the final one, he was talking about how, you know, this segregation is this model that we have for church. You know, we're always segregating the church because we're afraid of each other, and mm. specifically women and men. And he was um he was challenging this idea that we would segregate each other. How is that going to help us? Like, how will we ever learn to relate to each other as friends and like colleagues if we're always segregating each other? And it is such a great like critique of what we do in the church. It's fascinating. But um it's somebody pushed back and said, But like surely there are some times where segregation is the only answer, like in small accountability groups, for example, with mm. like uh when we're talking about pornography or like stuff like that. And And Bruxy was like, you know, it's really interesting. I was thinking a lot about this. And I was thinking about the difference between having a, a group of men talk about their addiction to pornography or their temptations in pornography or whatever this is. And then a group of mixed company where women are present, where men are talking about pornography. And he said, I wonder how much more powerful the accountability would be if you were accountable to the very people that are suffering Mm. because of what it is that you're participating in. So he's like, this is a fascinating thing that I'm struggling with this constant habit of objectifying women, and I'm going to talk about it to other men without any women. (laughs) Mm. Like, it's a really, and so it's the first time I ever, because I actually, as somebody was pushing back, I was like, yeah, maybe he has a point there. That is a bit weird. But then as he actually started thinking it through, I was like, that's a fascinating idea that we would segregate our own habit of objectification mm. and how much more healing and more powerful and more possible it might be for that accountability to matter if the people who suffer as a result are actually there. I mean, I know it's, it's crazy on some. No, parts, no. I mean, I'm, but it's I'm, also I'm listening. Powerful, so powerful.
0: I, I'm listening. The thing yeah. that's probably helped me the most is just seeing the image of God in people, Yes. seeing the image of God in women and in men and in other people and in other races and people who are not white males. Yeah. I mean, back to the earlier part of the conversation. It's yeah. like, and I owe that you know, to a number of friends in theology. Reggie Joyner harps on that a lot. And when you really see the image of God in someone, and it's really, really hard to treat them certain ways.
1: Yeah, because objectification is the opposite of humanizing people. It is dehumanizing people. Mm -hmm. So anything Mm -hmm. that objectifies people dehumanizes them. Yeah.
0: And that can be money, that can be status, that can be power, that can be sex, it can be any of those things. Yeah. So we've started to drill down on the problem. But your book isn't just about the problem. Right. And you're not coming you're you're trying to break down the shame, fear, guilt thing. Yes. So talk about the way forward. Your book's called Better Together. Yes. Right? Yeah. And uh, let me, I got it right here. Let me see how women and men, because I love the subtitle, can heal the divide and work together to transform the future. Yeah. So this isn't like, Everybody feel bad about it. You've done a bad job. Start painting the way forward for us. Because I think you're right. You've described the problem. And it's not just a church problem. It's a cultural problem. Absolutely. It's everywhere.
1: Yeah. And here's the thing. Like, I actually believe that the good news to this generation that has really known conflict uh, in a way that's, you know, almost unprecedented in the globe today, like conflict everywhere. And I think the good news looks like reconciliation. Mm. Like when Paul says the ministry of reconciliation is the gospel, like the ministry Mm. of reconciliation, the good news is the ministry of reconciliation. These are the same thing. So I'm always like, you want a message that's going to be relevant? Like you want to actually show a demonstration of what good news is? Mm. Live a reconciled life, like be reconciled, like Mm. figure out how to move out of a fear of difference to seeing difference as opportunity that would lead us to mutuality, which is interconnectedness, which is working together, which is collaborating together, which is dreaming together, which is where we're no longer afraid of each other, where we actually can see each other as uh, co-laborers in this beautiful stewarding of the world. Uh, That's what good news looks like. Hmm. That's what it looks like. And so I, I feel like for me, this is maybe one of the greatest demonstrations of the power of the gospel in the time in which we're living is reconciliation. And I think between men and women, it's, it's because it's everywhere. This is and this was also one of the early signs of the early church was the fact that, you know, there were the divisions were removed. Mm. Right? They were removed. And it was like a sign and a wonder, like women and men in you know, in that time in, in Palestine. I mean, it was crazy. That was that's can we, nuts. can
0: we talk about that for a second? Because sometimes I think it gets underplayed and sometimes I don't know that it gets overplayed because right. Uh, I'm not a, a, an ancient historian, right? But uh, can you just, for people who may not be familiar with the first century context, yeah, just what it was like before yeah. Christianity spread, and then what some of the the I mean, we have the verse, you know, there's neither male nor female, or right. slave or free, you know, in we, Galatians, yeah. yeah, in Galatians, we know that stuff, yeah. But you know, we live in a world where you know the church was pushing for women to get the vote. The church, you know, many would argue the church. You know, the church has been oppressive, but the church has actually been responsible for a lot of the egalitarian thrust in culture. Can you take us back from what you know to the first century and the radical difference the early church made?
1: Yeah, and the radical difference wasn't made through lobbying. It was made through demonstrating it in real life, right? So I think that's also a really good, important sort of distinction is that the good news is something you live Not just something you you tell, Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, this was a day and age where rabbis, so these are Jewish leaders, would get up in the morning and thank God they weren't born a woman or a gentile. Yeah, you know, I mean, this was like being born a woman was considered, you know, blameworthy, like it was a sin. And we've
0: seen that in China in the twentieth century. It's changing a little bit now, but it was like abort that baby.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like this is a. Actually, I've, I've talked to people. Uh, multiple people who are still like they were born in countries where because they were female, they were beaten. They were hid. They were stuck in places where wow. they couldn't be seen because they were so disappointed. Their parents were literally so disappointed. They were girls. And you just sort of think like, what on earth? Like where does that even come from? Um, but anyway, it's that kind of, in Rome, of course, the occupier mm-hmm. that, that the divisions of uh, the divisions between people were at an all time high classism racism, sexism, all of the isms. Hmm. I feel like kind of like today. Kind of feels like today, right? And the demonstration of the church in that time was to not give in to those divisions. We will not do that. We're actually gonna do something different. Jesus, of course, personifying this in the way that he treated everybody, uh, seeing the sacred through all the disguises, rich, poor, right? Beggar, healthy, unhealthy, uh, Gentile, Jew, woman, I mean, this is really strategic, Jesus, the way that he spoke to women and talked to women and empowered women and sent women, uh, even as apostles, right? Go tell the disciples. Mm-hmm. It's literally an right. apostolic like The first
0: witness is. Yeah, female. Yeah, in which an, if you were writing a, a fake age, story. Yeah, yeah,
1: in a time and age where they had no credibility under the law. So, I mean, he's obviously doing something on purpose. <laughs> hmm. You wouldn't accidentally do that.
0: And it was, It was. A, I mean, I'm not, not trying to like, this into an area that's not your expertise It's certainly not mine right um but this idea of husband but one wife yeah that was a pretty radical statement from what i understand in the first century that i'm going to be loyal to this one woman for no. life
1: yeah and not just loyal but love yeah that was crazy town because they were property right it was a value right. this was a value thing this wasn't mm-hmm. like this was like a setup for money and power and privilege this wasn't an actual like relationship
0: yeah yeah so paul's yeah.
1: instructions for husbands to love their wives as they love themselves it was like so cataclysmic crazy like if you were a roman hearing that you would be like this is nuts what it's insane yeah, yeah it's insane yeah
0: Wow. Yeah. Because a lot of marriage was about power and position and provision and that kind of thing. But this idea that the radical love that God has put into our hearts is something that now informs our relationship.
1: Yeah. And that your love of God would be seen through that love for each other. I mean, that's the Christian. That is the image of God being displayed. That is the ministry of reconciliation, right? Mm. This is the power of the gospel made demonstrated through our relationships. So how we actually relate to one another is a demonstration of the gospel or not. Right. And I think it's really important to understand that. So like at the center of this book is the ministry of reconciliation. It's the cross. Hmm. And I suggest that everything's either pushing towards a better future through the cross or it's pulling back. Uh, yeah, you've got that interesting
0: diagram, right, between yeah. pull back to the past or push yeah. forward
1: to the future. right? And you future always I, yeah. doing one of those things. Uh, For me, that was a really interesting thing. I'm either pushing forward with this cross message, with this gospel, or I'm pulling back from it. And I think that's important for you to realize as a leader, as every leader needs to realize they're either moving forward or they're pulling back. Right, so you've
0: got fear versus action, segregation versus proximity, patriarchy uh, versus clarity, et cetera, et cetera. you drill down a little bit more on the push-pull?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that this, I mean, all this kind of really came to a head for me I was in Rwanda with uh, World Relief. And I was sitting in this village called the Transformation Village. And there are these centers in Rwanda, you know, where which suffered that genocide 20 years ago, yeah. where we all just were like, you know, over a million people were killed in 40 days. It was crazy massacred. And I was sitting in this transformation village, which are kind of these like examples Rwanda has used to say, we're going to rebuild the country. We're never going to let this happen again. Hmm. And they've used this thing called one people. So you're not allowed to be a tribe. You're just Rwandan now. There's no tribes anymore. There's no Hutu,
0: Tutsi. Yeah, there's
1: no divisions anymore. Mm -hmm. We're no longer going to live this way. So what they did was they looked for people that would live sort of reconciliation in real life in these transformation villages. So they could say, this is what it looks like. So we're visiting one of these transformation villages and we met Grace who lives there and her neighbor, John. And Grace tells us, you know, about the massacre of her family. She's the only survivor just sort of about her own trauma and her own journey of like getting to forgiveness as a way of coping, just like living. Because yeah. otherwise she just wanted to offer herself every single day. And she talked about how forgiveness was one of the ways that unlocked healing in her life. And we're just like, that's awesome, you know, great. And then she's like, now I want you, I want to introduce you to my neighbor. My neighbor's John. And she like literally reaches over and grabs his hand tenderly. And he says, John is also the man who killed my family. And we were like, I'm like three feet from them. And I'm just like, no, no, that's (laughs) not a thing. Like you can't, that's not a like that's, you've just taken this thing way too far.
0: Yeah, yeah. You
1: know, and then John begins to tell his story through tears. And like every time he would like not be able to speak, she would just reach over and like pat his hand. And at one point she just said, I'm so glad you're here, John. I'm so glad you're here. And John talked about like being part of this massacre, killing her family, like being caught up in this like thing that happened, and then just being so filled with self-loathing and hiding. He was a you know, 150 prisoners they had in Rwanda. And he was one of those prisoners. And he talked about every morning he would get up and just wanna off himself and wondered like why he was alive. And and then some Christian, Rwandan Christians, went in to visit and minister to prisoners all these people that had massacred their family and said, you know, you can you can be forgiven. This isn't the end. This isn't the last uh, act. There's an act bigger than this. It's called a resurrection. <laughs> and Jesus is the, the king of that act. And so anyway, he received Jesus and he sort of was like, maybe I could be forgiven. And then they were like, anyone that wants to make restitution, willing to tell the truth about what happened and wants to serve, you know, Rwanda and rebuild the country uh, will reduce your sentence by half if you're willing to be part of this project. So he was like, I don't think I deserve it. And I think I probably should die, but I really do want to rebuild this country and I want to make things right. And so he put up his hand for the project. So he, they moved them into this transformation village. Grace and John gave them a plot of land with a pile of bricks in the middle and said, okay, build a new life. And so then they started to, cause we're just like full of, like we're like, what, how? Like, ah. Unbelievable. Like, I, yeah, like totally. And I'm just, I can touch you, but I still can't believe this is happening. And so they just said, you know, every day we would meet at the brick pile. And she said, the first thing we did was we separated our property so we wouldn't have to see each other because I was filled with fear and he was filled with loathing and shame. So every time we met each other, this fear and the shame and loathing would come in. So he said, we tried not to make eye contact and we just went about building our own houses on our own plot of land. And, but we kept meeting at the brick pile and Grace said, I found there were things I couldn't do and I would have to eventually ask John for his help. And John would not only help me, but every time I would take a break, he would come over and he would work on my house. And he would do things to, you know, and every time we met, she said, eventually we started looking at each other in the eye. And eventually we started, and now we're like the best of friends. And I'm, he's family, then my family's gone, and I'm his family. And we've decided to live a reconciled life. And we're, there's not a dry eye in the place. Like, we're just like, our mouths are dropped to the, like, we're just like, okay, now forgiveness just became something that, like, Mm. I need to do more of. And also you realize, whoa, this message, like, It's power. And then when Paul says, you know, this is the ministry of reconciliation and it is the good news, you're like, it really is the good news. I mean, it's otherworldly. Yeah, this is a sign yeah. and a wonder that there's a way of life that's different. We do not have to be stuck in these perpetual, you know, victimization and, per, you know, just we can be free. And that the world's desperate for this. And I think between women and men, this is the most important message of all. Like, it's time to live a different way. Well, I was don't gonna have to s- live this way anymore.
0: That's where you're pointing in the book, right? Yeah. And We're you're trying enemies. to—
1: we're not enemies. You're not an enemy of mine because you're a man. You are a gifted, beautiful human being. You're good. You were made good. You're sacred. And so am I. And we were actually made, we were designed for collaboration, Genesis. Before the fall, mm. we were designed to co-steward the world together.
0: So this you was- talk about getting beyond the the blame, shame, yeah. Yeah. all of that. Yeah. Um, you tell a story early in the book, because uh, you speak at Willow Creek on yes. a regular basis. Yes. Right after all the allegations came out at, yeah. uh, during the you know Me Too movement and the horrible stories started pouring out of there, you went into Willow Creek to speak and you took a lot of criticism for that because yeah. we live in a cancel culture. Yeah. We live in a banished to the edge of the universe, never to be spoken of again yes. culture and one where you make... Why did you go?
1: Yeah, I felt called... To go, yeah. I felt like God said someone needs to speak here. And actually what needs to be spoken here is a message of hope, possibility. Well, and not like dismissal. Yeah. Like, and that's the message of reconciliation. You cannot have reconciliation without like forgiveness on one hand and then repentance and restoration on the other. Correct. Like so there's no repentance and no restoration. There's actually no reconciliation. Make no yeah, mistake. Yeah, yeah but that actually that reconciliation is the heart of God and that this is a better story that we're writing together and we're supposed to write it together. This cannot, you know, we cannot just fill this void with more fear. We can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. So point us
0: toward a few steps we can do. And I love the hope. I I will remember, I will hang on to that story because Yeah, it's a story that sounds otherworldly. Like it really sounds like, okay, one day when we die, that's probably what heaven will be like. Like that's great, you know, awesome. Right. Um, And yet, exactly, the kingdom is a realized kingdom. Um,
1: Yeah, and Walter Brueggemann helped us here, and this is my first chapter. Sort of like, if you can't imagine it, you're never going to get it. Right. This is the church is literally called to help the world imagine a better one. This is part of like we're supposed to be the city on a hill, the light of the world.
0: But it feels like it's getting worse. Like it feels right. like like on social, it's so polarized, yes. Danielle. And I you know. know that. I know. And everybody just like, you know, I call them Twitter mobs and yeah. you know, you're you're jumping on each other. Yeah. And so how do we break this down? Like give us a couple of, of tangible steps. So yeah. talk talk to here here's an example, because it'll mm-hmm. be very real. Mm-hmm talk to church leaders or business leaders who have practiced that Billy Graham rule, so to speak, or just like, yeah, I'm never going to meet with a woman directly, yeah. you know, who are, who are in that pattern. What would you say to them?
1: Yeah, change your mind and then change uh, your practice. One, change your mind. And I think phenomenal leaders use their power to empower other people. So if the dominant question you're asking is, how can I protect myself? You're asking the wrong question. It's a terrible leadership question. How can I protect myself? <laughs> it's bad. It's going to lead to terrible things. Uh, what I would say is, how can I empower people? Right. Ask a different question. How do I help people? How do I help other people? And how do I help people who don't have as much power as me? That's the ultimate. You know, that's mm. the ultimate leadership question. That's the ultimate Jesus leadership question. Is how do I use my power to empower other people, and particularly people who don't have power? Um, so I would say, like one, change your mind. And then I'd say, change your practice. And I would suggest that you intentionally begin to listen. So I just do a little, I use this with Amplify Peace. We use this and how to sort of change our minds and cultures and lives. And one is listen to voices you don't normally hear. Hmm. So find them. So if you're around a leadership table and there's no women there, go find the women and ask them why they're not there. And you'll discover some things that you never noticed before about why they're not there. It's fascinating. So HSBC did this with their banking system. Okay. And they realized that they were spending copious amounts of money trying to find new senior managers because they were losing all their managers. And then somebody had the idea we should go find our old managers and find why we lost them. So they called up all the old managers. Turns a vast majority of them were female who were having children and the banking nine to five realities and the lack of support for parental leave and all these things were in the way. So they just were like, okay, fine, no bank. I'd rather raise my kids in a healthy way. Hmm. So then after they listened, They identified some of the problems. They started to learn that there were other ways to do things. And they began to learn from other companies. It's a digital age. Are banking hours fixed now? Is this the best thing even for their clientele? And they started realizing there was way more flexibility that was going to not only make things better for women, but make things better for everybody. And so they learned uh, these new ways of doing things. Flexible hours, workplace practices, daycares at work, all sorts of things that they uh, learned. And then they just lived differently. They implement, 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 implement. And now they're one of the, like, the leading companies of the world to work for. People can't, you know, they understand that diversity now, instead of just being a practice of discipline because it's better, they realize it's actually in their best interest. Hmm. I'd say the same thing for every church leader. This is not just something that you have to do because it's like the better thing to do, although it is that. If it's just conviction that'll get you there, then by all means use conviction. But I'm going to say it's probably your best opportunity you've ever seen to do things differently. Yeah. And everyone will benefit, mm-hmm. everyone, the whole world.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree. To get right back to you know a rule that I practiced for many years, just yeah. out of what I thought was integrity. Tony and I, you know, we're going to have dinner in a few minutes, but uh, I'm on the road a lot, and she's got her own podcast now, so yeah. she has her studio upstairs, and her co-host is a male. Now he happens to have been a family friend for 18 years, and she's like, "What do you think about me and Rob recording when you're on the road?" I'm like, "I trust Rob. I trust you. I'm not worried about it. You know, if Rose is cool, I'm cool. His yeah. wife." And I really don't worry about it. I think our marriage is just fine and yeah. strong enough for all that stuff. So, you know, I would just say to leaders, you want to rethink it. You want to make sure you know your spouse is on the same page. You have a strong marriage, that kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, there there are definitely some systemic barriers, and, and the same goes with leadership development as well.
1: Great leadership uh, tri- uh, ratio that they suggest. All the research says if you want to change the culture of a team, there's a thing called a thirty percent quota. So lots of times what will happen is people will react and say, oh, we need a woman on the board. So they'll just grab a woman on the board. That's tokenism. And uh, often that backfires. Not only, uh, even if you get the right woman, if she's the only one, it's called the only syndrome. Hmm. It's like she's always the dissenting voice. She's always the exception. She's always the one left out. 30% actually will change the culture of the team. Ah. And that's when you'll experience your best uh, culture shift. 30%. So 30% quota. I say that a lot. Aim for 30% quota. Find those women, identify those women, resource those women, deploy those women, and you'll find that that makes a massive difference to the culture of a team.
0: Oh, fascinating. Mm. Okay, anything else, Danielle? (laughs) We covered a lot.
1: Yeah, I feel like we did. No, the only thing I would say is that I do end with hope. I think this is a really hopeful message. Yeah. And And also, you know, I'm the mother of three boys, so I refuse to give in to the cynical, despairing culture that says men are bad. Mm. it's not true in my experience my husband's amazing i know so yeah. many men who've been amazing and empowering and generous and kind and good and uh, all three Maya my boys are not destined to grow up as harassers or jerks there's no question right. in my mind right so we got to change this you have to change the narrative and it's time and uh i'm full of hope for the future
0: okay i got one more question for you yep. and I, I meant to ask this earlier It can be very easy, particularly your Enneagram 8, so justice-oriented, and your whole life moves in that direction. But part of justice, and you can see this in the cultural narrative, and it's something you've hinted at in multiple conversations, including this one, that you've had to get past, that sort of anger, shame, I'll just guilt these people into change. Yes. How have you pivoted on that personally?
1: Literally, in this specific area, I tuck my son Moses in to bed at night, and I say to him, who made you? And Moses looks at me with this big grin. He's like the epitome of joy. Uh-huh. And He says, God made me. And I say, he sure did, honey. And how did he make you? And he looks at me and he says, he made me good. Uh-huh. And I say, he made you fearfully. He made you wonderfully. He knit you together. He designed every day for you. He made you good. I agree. And then I realize that I agree with that about everyone. Everyone. Underneath all of the oppression, all of the cycles, all of the sin all of the suffering all of the injustice like all of the systemic all of the patriarchy all of the misogyny if you strip it all away there is the sacred image of god etched inside of every single human person and that's what we're after let's let that shine let's let that shine and i I just choose to believe it
0: and you want to live in rwanda (laughs) right (laughs) that beautiful beautiful vision of reconciliation yeah what let's make every
1: church a transformation village huh yeah let's do it
0: yeah Fun. Danielle, that's great. Where yeah. can people find you these days? We're talking podcast. You have one. Yeah, you might relaunch it. I sure it. do. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: uh, Find me there. You can find all the things on there. Yep.
0: Right. And the books, Amazon, everywhere books are sold. Everywhere, it's called Better Audible, Together. all that jazz. It's yep. out now? Yep, yep. it's all out. All right. Danielle, once Enjoy. again, what a joy. Thanks, Kim. Thanks. Yeah. Well, that was super refreshing, honest, challenging, and as always with Danielle, inspiring. So uh, I love those in person conversations. We don't get enough of them. And this one happened right here in my home studio after a delicious big green egg dinner. So that was an awful lot of fun to uh, spend some time again with Danielle. Uh, We have show notes for you guys. You can head on over to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 362. They are there along with some quotes and some other things that you can share. And uh, remember, today's episode is brought to you by Lead a Better Team. If you want not maybe a new team because you kind of dream about that as a leader, but a better team, like how do you make the actual people you have better, go to leadabetterteam.com. And get some introductory pricing before it expires. And it's brought to you by Glue Insights. If you want to actually know who is watching online, go to glueinsights.com forward slash carry. That's G L O O insights.com forward slash C A R E Y. Well, uh, on the next episode, we have John Tyson coming up. This was a rich conversation, man. Last time he was on the show, I just felt like it could have been a three hour conversation. We did it again, or he did it again. And, um, we, yeah, we talk about all kinds of things. Like, what is the church missing if you rush back to normal too fast? He's got some deep insights. Here's an excerpt. Uh, the thing that I think is so sad, I mean, there's so many ways I could respond, but I think the thing that's so sad is I, I feel like we didn't, re- in our quest for normalcy, we didn't learn any of the great lessons we needed to learn. I feel like, as a whole, we missed them. This, this could have been an absolute revolution. And everybody was like, is this the beginning of a move of God? Look how many people are crying out to God. And I was like, God is so gracious, he will respond to panic prayers. And he often sends things to get us to. But when it all just sort of like, okay, I think we're going to be okay, all those 24-7 prayer meetings just faded off, you know, and all the big efforts just sort of drifted back to. And then the question became, how soon can we reopen? So that is coming up next episode on the podcast. And now it's time for what I'm thinking about. And what I'm thinking about is your team. So I've got this brand new course called Lead a Better Team. And you might be saying, well, what kinds of things are in the course? So I want to give you a little excerpt. And I want to talk to you about your workflow system. So so often, it's the things we don't think about that really hold back our team. And what I try to do, it's a nine-unit course online on demand is I try to show you, okay, here's some hidden things that maybe you haven't thought about as a leader that you can fix. And one of them is workflow system. And you know, if you didn't really lead a remote team prior to COVID, you you hit a brick wall with this thing probably in week one, because so much of office culture when it comes to productivity is about informal and inefficient systems. So what happens is you're trying to get a project done and, you know, it's cool to be able to talk to people outside of the meeting or in the lunchroom or wherever, but so much of your communication happens. Now, I've led in-person teams and virtual teams. Right now, I lead a 100% virtual team and I realized, wow, we need a workflow system. So you know what the default is in most offices? It's like people just talking to each other casually and then sometimes you just send an email. Well, email is an incredibly inefficient way. And so what I show you how to do and Lead a Better Team is to create what I call a workflow system. And you should design one. So I'm going to share mine, all right? You don't have to do this, but if you want to, this has helped us become so much more efficient and effective. Uh, Because clarifying how you do things will make everyone better at the things that you do. So what we do is we use email as a last resort. In fact, our staff are not allowed to email each other. You're like, what? Uh, Now, if we're interacting with an outside client, let's say there's a podcast partner and I've got to talk to my team and that partner at the same time. Yes, we'll use email, Um, but we don't. And what we try to do, and I'm going to walk you through this system. And again, you don't need this system. You just need a system and a system that works for you. Uh, We try to hold a lot of things for weekly one-on-one meetings. Everyone has a direct report. I've got three right now. And I'm just like, hey, just hang on to that for a weekly meeting. And we spend usually about a half hour together once a week. I show you exactly how to transform your weekly one-on-one meetings, by the way, with a whole unit on that in Lead a Better Team. And uh, I just say, keep a list. And if it's not super urgent, and it's amazing how few things are super urgent. Like you get a text that's like, hey, what should I do about this? It's like, well, you didn't need to answer that right now, but it just interrupted you. So if it can wait, wait to the weekly one-on-one meeting and just have an efficient system to park issues so you don't lose track of them. So ours is Asana. I just have an Asana with all of my staff members as a separate task. And if I've got something, oh, I got to talk to Jacqueline about this, or I have to talk to Aaron about this, or I need to talk to Sam about that. I just write it in their file and I keep it. And then we discuss it during their weekly meeting. And they do the same for me. That solves a lot of the day-to-day clatter that is distracting. Number two, you have a weekly team meeting. So we do a video call. We do all of our calls via video. And most team things can wait, again, until if you're having a weekly meeting, it's not that hard. Then you've got to figure out a messaging system. So Uh, What we do, if it needs a same day or next day response, but it's not like super urgent, I don't need this, this very second, we use Slack. Now, you don't have to use Slack, uh, but this replaces email. And so our team's all on Slack. We have a couple of outside people who work pretty closely with us on Slack too. And, uh, you know, if I'm like, oh, I I need to hear from, you know, Sarah by the end of the day, or I need to hear from Lauren by the end of the day, then I'll just Slack them. And, then that takes care of everything. And you get to Slack when you have the time. Now, again, you could use that like within two hours, but we just say, hey, by the end of the day, make sure you get to Slack. That works for a lot of stuff. Then if it becomes urgent, like, no, I'm kind of at a, at a stone wall because I can't do this until I know the information, that's when you text people. And um, so we're like, hey, yeah, if it can't wait for Slack, if it's got to be done sooner, shoot me a text, okay? And I will occasionally look at my text And then I get back to people. And then if it's like really important or complicated or urgent, phone call or video call. So important as in this really can't wait. When my staff sees my number come up on their call display, they know like, I need you right now. Okay, that's the signal. It's a nuclear option. And then if it's really complicated or it involves conflict, which is relatively rare on our team, but let's say it does, then it's a phone call or a video call. And then email. Once again, you see how little is dependent on email? It's only for interaction with outside clients, not people on your direct team. So that's my system, but I promise you, you know when you get a thousand distractions a day, It is your workflow system. And so in Lead a Better Team, I will walk you through that in much more detail and give you the questions and the application guide to create the the workflow system that works for your team. But when you get that moving, whether you lead a virtual team, a remote team, a hybrid team where you have some people who are distanced and some people who are in the office, you're going to have a universal system that works really, really well and you can tweak it. So, you know, Slack may not be around forever. We might not find it helpful for forever. You might say, no, let's use text for different things or we'll use email for different things. But my goodness, I'll tell you, you can die in the land of reply alls. You can die in the land of, I've got 17 texts I got to answer. And if you just decide, here's how we're going to communicate this is gonna be our workflow system. My goodness, you will get so much more efficient and so much more effective. Obviously, leading a better team is about a lot more than that. But I've got about half the course where I show you how to deepen employee engagement by transforming your weekly one-on-one meetings, by eliminating toxic culture. Also, I show you um, how you can create value statements. That took me like years to figure out. I show you the shortcut. And then we talk in the second part of the course about moving to results-based leadership. I've got a number of units on that. And then some pro tips on leading virtual or hybrid teams or how do you even decide whether someone needs to be in the office or not? What if they want to work from home? What if they want flexible hours? All of that. All of that and more is available for introductory pricing right now at LeadABetterTeam.com. And if you're listening outside of the launch window, don't worry, Lead a Better Team is going to be there. We would love to get that in your hands. So head on over to leadabetterteam.com before it's too late. We would love to help you do that because the cost of turnover is so expensive. The cost of inefficiency is so expensive. And what if you don't need a new team? What if you just need a better team? Go to leadabetterteam.com. You can learn more now. Hope that was helpful. We're back next time with a fresh episode. Can't wait for you to hear the conversation with John Tyson. And in the meantime, I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.